Hi, I'm Scott Reyes-Manis, founder of Mod.io and ModDB.com, and you're listening to the Tomorrow with Robio podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tomorrow with Robio podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mattis. Uh, the interview you're about to listen to or watch was actually recorded some months ago. I reached out to the CEO of Mod.io, Scott Reismanis, when I read an article about some of the work that Scott and his team was doing on Mod.io. And it was very interesting because it touches upon themes that we've explored a lot on this podcast, things like user-generated content, things like uh, sort of community development, developing in hand with the community, etc. And so Scott and I had this wonderful chat, but I had this backlog of episodes that I needed to publish before I could get to the interview you're about to listen to. Just a week or so ago, uh, Scott and his team announced they've had a very successful fundraising. And so the stars are aligned and it felt very appropriate that we would release this episode now. The conversation with Scott was really insightful because frankly, if you've played almost any popular game today, you owe something to mods. If you've played you know, League of Legends, you owe something to mods. If you've played a first-person shooter, you owe something to mods. PUBG was originally a mod. There are so many of the big trends in gaming found their original home as a mod of some other game and then spun into something much bigger and much more powerful. And so when you think about the history of gaming and how much we owe to mods, and when you think about the growing trends, in terms of sort of participatory creation and user-generated content, I think it's hopefully obvious to you why Scott, Mod.io, and the subject of mods would, would, would be such an appropriate topic for us to explore on the podcast. Please enjoy. Apologies if there are any references in this podcast that might seem a little bit dated. Again, we recorded this in the height of the summer. It's now November, you know. The world has changed drastically in those months, but it, it, it's it's an incredibly interesting interview. And again, I think you'll learn a lot about the, the really foundations of modern gaming and their connections to the mod scene of yesterday, the mod scene of today, and, and obviously where modding is going in the future. So please enjoy. Um, okay, so let's start with the hellos. Scott, good to see you again. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, uh, it's great to be here, Ben, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, we uh, we sort of met for the first time, I guess it was a couple of months ago. We had that sort of preliminary chat where we were talking about all the same stuff we're going to talk about on the on the podcast today. And you mentioned that it was a bit of a small world because you had already met some members of my team, which I had completely not known. It was just a total coincidence. So it's funny the way the industry sort of collides and bounces off each other as we go about our days. Um, but I thought yeah. it would be fun. Uh, we just start with the introductions usually. So talk about yourself, introduce yourself, uh, sort of maybe brief overview of kind of your career. And there is something that absolutely dominates your career and so let, let's sort of set that up yeah absolutely so uh I, I suppose my career in gaming began um 20 odd years ago i was i was still in high school and uh, i was just like so many other gamers just playing a lot of first person shooter titles in my youth um i was a competitive gamer and uh, i was always drawn to 
mods and UGC um, because just the, the sheer creativity and the fact that they took Deathmatch to another level um, was always something that I really enjoyed. And that's really what kickstarted my you know, passion and love for the industry because it's, it's such a creative medium and modders and that whole community was, was, was sharing and doing so many dynamic things. And that's really what, what got me started. I, I launched a website called moddb.com in 2002 um, because I wanted it to be easier to find all of the content that people are making and yeah. um, it was so hard. And you know, from there, it just grew and grew and grew. And um, I've sort of you know, been, been involved and around this space ever since. That's mm, great. So you, you talk about the creativity of mods in UGC. And I have a question, a little a question, that, you know, just next about kind of some of the whatever, the, the greatest hits of mods, because there's some pretty big ones out there, including a lot of games that people are probably playing today that they they might not know originated in mods. But as someone who has sort of almost kind of, you know, run the gamut of mods from almost its earliest, certainly its earliest heyday to today, are there any sort of standout stories for you personally, you know, mods that really caught your attention, not necessarily because they were the biggest and the best and the greatest, but just because of that sheer creativity? There's too many to, to name, really. But, uh, I mean, the one that I always liked talking about was this Half-Life mod that never really made it um, big, but uh, it was called War in Europe. And, okay. uh, in effect, you were storming um, the sort of D-Day beach uh, and uh, one, that sort of atmosphere and environment, like, kind of captured it really well. It was It's Half-Life, so it was super blocky, but it felt kind of visceral jumping off the, the U-boats and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, and... What was really amazing about this was this was an early version of gun game uh, where the more kills you got, the the more your weapon upgraded. So the, oh, the, it was horrifically unbalanced as a result of that <laughs> because the the person who got the first kill then got a machine went from a pistol to a machine gun, and then you went you know from a machine gun to a you know like a rifle, and and like it, you got this crazy progression. Um, but uh, it, it just created this really awesome emergent gameplay where where like all, all my friends and I were playing this together and we'd team up against the person who was leading um, to sort of you know, create that balance ourselves. And mm-hmm. so I, I just, I just love that modders were just experimenting with so many different ideas and gameplay concepts um, outside of the usual Counter-Strike and Team yeah. Fortress and Dota and the usual contenders. And, and what a great platform and opportunity to play with some of those crazier ideas that, yeah, they might, they risk debalancing things, which obviously risks messing with any sort of business model you might be trying to establish but they can you know it's a it's a safe haven for exploration so that's pretty cool Mm. um and let's just continue on so so you showed me this great website you made the mod hall of fame it looks great it's wonderful it's like surfing through memory lane for me um can you talk about sort of like i mean almost just historically going through the Mod Hall of Fame, but but with a particular focus on kind of like some of the top performing games today that started out as mods, because again, like there's a ton, right? And and I'm not sure everyone understands how much the current state of the industry owes to mods. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll, I'll preface this by saying the Mod Hall of Fame is a little bit biased in that it's obviously a Hall of Fame that we've decided on um, just through titles that we've loved and played over the years and journey um, and uh, as well as having all the hits. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that regard, 
I, I think it all sort of begins in the doom and quake days. Um, mm-hmm. ID Software was really one of the first companies that really opened up their code to the community and, and um, encouraged you know, maps and levels and people to explore ideas. And that's largely what led to the creation of Team Fortress um, back in 95. Um, and uh, I think you know, that, that just completely changed things from a deathmatch title to squad-based objectives, cl- weapons, classes, you know, so Absolutely. many different things. It was, it was incredible. Um, and so that's sort of the, for me, that's the, really the beginning. Like that's 95. That's, that's what, 25, no, 20, more than 26, that, like 26 yeah. years ago now. Um, and then you sort of fast forward and uh, I was a first-person shooter gamer, so naturally um, natural selection and Counter-Strike um and then the you know the make something unreal competition which was red orchestra and um project reality these titles all feature in the early sort of 2000s um mm-hmm. as first person shooter type titles are really pushing the envelope and trying different things um but in and amongst that of course you've got warcraft 3 and warcraft 3 meant um dota and that's league of legends today and um uh, you know, dota as well and numerous other titles that have been been made along that sort of MOBA genre. Uh, so here we've got sort of, I guess, modders that have largely led to the creation of the entire MOBA genre. They've led to the creation of sort of squad and team-based objective shooters in Counter-Strike and Team Fortress. And if you sort of look forward a few more years and you get into the 210s, that's where you've got DayZ um, as part of the Armour sort of two code base. And um, DayZ led to the survival genre, and that's rust and all those sorts of you know hundreds of really massive and successful games daisy itself uh like you know again what is really pushing the envelope and boundaries and um i i, su- I suppose sort of the, the the most recent sort of ones have been um the PUBG, which again is an armor armor mod um and so the player unknown sort of you know, they they created this 60k 100 person parachuting type gameplay concept that's now uh, PUBG has continued Royale. that Battle Royale and Fortnite and all those titles. So modders have just, you know, been in, when you give them the tools and the sort of open platform and nature, like these games did, it's it's insane what they'll make. And like, what well, that's pretty much the three biggest genres in gaming today. Of pretty much, sort of, yeah. Can all, can you basically all just described video games. Good job. <laughs> yeah, they can all tie their origin back to modders. So obviously. There was like a like a heyday of mods of sort of this type of mod in particular, what you were kind of referring to as the total conversion. We can probably talk a little bit about that in a second. And and the form of popular mods seems to have evolved somewhat. Uh, I would that's my read on it. Like in the last say couple of years, maybe the maybe the type of mods that are being released is shifting or evolving. So can you sort of talk a little bit about how like the industry and platforms shaped the evolution of the kinds of mods that were popular, starting, I guess, from the total conversion leading up to, you know, whatever it is we're seeing today? Yes. The, the early days of modding was, is very different to sort of what we experience today, um, and that's largely due to friction, and there was friction everywhere. So if you're a game creator and you wanted to make a new gameplay concept, you couldn't just grab Unity or Unreal or the engines like you can today as an indie game developer and just make a title using the same technology that AAA studios are using. Uh, back in the early 2000s, 
you had to mod a game like Source Engine from Valve, uh, or you had to modify like you know Unreal Tournament from Epic or Warcraft Three from Blizzard. Like you had to pick a game and you know modify it to make your own game. And back then, these games were very open in how they approached modding. Like modding was always done at arm's length; it was completely unofficial, sort of. And and as a result of that, people used these base games to make an entirely new gameplay experience, total conversions in essence. So modding in the early days was these massive, really elaborate, completely transforming the entire gameplay concept um, type creations. Whereas mm-hmm. we then, the games industry changes and evolves just like any, any sort of, you know, creative medium where uh, Unity and Unreal and these, you know, really incredible core technologies started coming out in the late two, 2000s, like 2008 onwards, um, and opening up their licenses. Um, meanwhile, you've got digital distribution in the form of Steam and other platforms also opening up. What that meant is all of a sudden mod creators that have been making these titles for free and completely converting these base games could suddenly start um, creating indie games and using AAA equivalent engines and also find an audience because they didn't have to go to retail. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that put a lot of pressure on the modding scene and, and like at, at points there, it was it was sort of on a downward trend um, because like you know the t- most talented modders had shifted to game creation, and so many of my favorite most favorite games of all time like Chivalry and Insurgency they all formed studios during this period and have gone on to create smash hit titles. But then, of course, what digital distribution then started to do, and the next sort of evolution in gaming is that. Because digital meant that content distribution is now easy and it's no longer constrained to bricks and mortar, modding now had a second life where it started to sort of go move away a little bit from these total conversions and more right. into cosmetics and, and new right. weapons and new skins and right. items or levels or little tweaks. And because it's so easy to access and install this content, players now could and studios could now integrate that into their game using Steam Workshop or like what we're working on at mod.io and with one click, you know, you can now download this little individual item for your game. So the modern mod is in a way probably just smaller tweaks of the base gameplay as opposed to the massive total conversions. Um, Hmm. Having said all that, I think we're sort of now entering this third cycle where we're going to see total conversions sort of come more to the prominence as games recognize the value and power that you know a strong UGC creates for them uh, and they start sort of exploring what they can do with that. Okay. Yeah, and I guess your last point there, maybe, I mean, maybe that ties into this, this next question. So, so we had the total conversion era, right? And then we had the sort of the mod winter, I guess, a little bit, right? And then there's this sort of, you know, rise of of more fragmented smaller you know mods but but there are also i believe in the last few years stories of you know professional or semi-professional developers choosing to mod first and then you know whatever like like spin out into a full game afterwards the one that jumps out to me is uh dota auto chess and how that predated team fight tactics but I mean, was that a, was that a perfect, like Drodo Studios, were they an incorporated developer when they made Dota Auto Chess? Do you know? And then, or, or was it just a bunch of kids who, you know, like, like the typical sort of total conversion chose 
they just they instead of using Steam, instead of using um, you know Unreal, they 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 chose to build on Dota. Do do you have any thoughts as to why Dota Auto Chess wasn't built in Unreal or Unity? Why it followed the more kind of whatever old school uh, total conversion uh, process? Well, I, th- I think there's a lot of reasons why people mod and why it's you know still got so many success stories even today, like Dota. Um, auto chess, um, uh, PUBG came out in this time and, uh, you know, like a lot of other titles also came out in this time. Uh, and the reason is, is that like, if you create an indie game, it's really hard to find an audience because people don't right. know what you're working on. They've got no idea and you're, you know, you've got completely fresh IP. They've never seen it before. Whereas when you create a mod of a game, you get immediate access to however large that game's player base is. They're generally like you know how passionate and engaged they are, um, and the, those players generally want to explore new experiences and right. content within this world and universe that they're already familiar with. Um, and so, like for for studios that that make like things like Auto Chess, they probably generally speaking they just love the title. Um, they're super passionate about it. They saw an opportunity to modify what is already an incredible game, and in, you know to to make minor tweaks to it um, or major tweaks. So I, I think there's still massive incentives and reasons why people would still mod because it's a great proving ground. It's a quick proving mm-hmm. ground because the assets, the art, everything's already made for you. Um, you don't have to really start from scratch. You're using an you know, incredibly strong base game. Um, yeah. So like, that's sort of what un- underpins it. And it's a great sort of stepping stone into industry to learn your craft and um, you know, refine your skills and um, you know, tap into large audiences. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall. I have no idea how big the team is who worked on that. You know, if it was a couple of couple of heads, then I, you know, I can understand why that being, that makes a lot of sense. I guess the thing that I still sort of scratch my head at is that if that was already a professional incorporated studio and they chose to invest those resources in a mod that they knew that they wouldn't be able to immediately monetize, right? Unless it blew up and they could then strike a deal and turn it into a standalone it's it's a it's a big leap of faith from a business point of view and that's the part that's still that's still interesting to me when people these days choose to mod you know off platform and they do so knowing that they're they they probably aren't going to be able to make any money from that effort uh it's a real passion play and so you you'd expect it to be associated more with the sort of whatever up and comer, the people cutting their teeth, everything that you just sort of explained as a way of learning the craft. But when it's done by an already incorporated professional developer, that's the one where I was like, oh my God, this is kind of interesting. Now I might be wrong. Maybe Drodo was not yet. Maybe they only incorporated after the the success. So, you know, we'll all look into that, but. Yeah. I suspect that they probably weren't because whilst I'm not too familiar with their background, um, they, probably didn't realize the hit uh, that they'd created because very quickly, once they realized it, they then, uh, you know, formed their studio and started working on their title, which they ultimately shipped on the Epic Games Store. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we saw sort of Valve and, uh, you know, Riot sort of launch equivalent games. So I think had they been aware of what they were about to stumble onto, maybe they may have started right. first right, right. in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> they, won, they won the gaming lottery and then quickly... Quickly got their act together. Correct, um, yeah. So a- another type of mod that I see, this seems to be, 
very popular with role-playing games. I see this, I see these kinds of things a lot with The Witcher. And I don't know if that's just because The Witcher 3 was kind of, is kind of like the benchmark RPG continues to be the benchmark open world RPG out there. But I see, I see these sort of like visual enhancement mods a lot. And sometimes it's just like a texture pack and sometimes it's a new story. Um, so it's kind of like a story pack add on to The Witcher 3. And I mean, some of them are, you know, they're, they're hiring recording artists. Uh, you know, they're making new assets. They're making new storylines. They're making new cinematics. So, you know, what are your thoughts about the sort of visual enhancement mod and the story enhancement mod? And are these trends that are increasing? Are they decreasing? Uh, do they have any different behaviors compared to the typical total conversion or the more granular kind of like cosmetic upgrades that we were talking about earlier? So like Witcher, Skyrim, those sort of RPG type titles, they have uh, absolutely unbelievable creator communities because they've got this incredible blank canvas, like this right. massive universe. Uh, and it's impossible uh, for an indie, like even a large AAA team really to replicate that. You know, like the, the teams at CD Projekt Red and at Bethesda that have made those games, you know, significant. And so I think the creators and explorers that work on those titles, well, there's so much scope there. One, there's people who want to change the skybox and the look and the feel and you know, yeah. bring, you know, make the graphics HD and whatever else. Those are the most popular mods um, just because okay. like, pe- people always joke that to start playing Skyrim, the first step that you do is you have to install 50 mods just to you know, get all the tweaks and settings and the visual appearance you know, looking like how you want it to. Um, like that's step one. Uh, and so for those games, I think because it's such an involved, expansive, immersive experience, cosmetic mods in the sense of just gra- get graphic and sort of gameplay enhancements and tweaks can really make the experience so much more visceral and real and, and awesome. Uh, and then you get to the creative side of modding where it's like, all right, now I want to, you know, replace dragons with, uh, you know, trains or I want to replace, you know, like get, get crazy and just, you know, replace all the sounds with, you know, like, you know wrestlers sounds or something else. Um, and that's where you can get into the sort of more cosmetic fun, um, you know, sort of, you know, different mods. Um, but, yeah. but I think there's scope and, and, and space for all of them. Uh, and for me, the, the title that I like the most is in, in this one. Is, it's probably lesser known, but the Stalker community is quite incredible if you ever okay. delve into it because when that game shipped, they over the course of that game's development, they released like, you know, footage of various versions of the title. And modders have gone and the final version was a little bit different from the footage and the alphas and everything that was shown to the players. And the players have gone and recreated what they think the alphas were meant to be and sort of you know, made the game look like it was like they thought it, it could have looked like. And they've tried all these different scenarios and settings. Um, in, in many ways, they like tried like four or five different versions of the same game through mods. So, yeah, really cool stuff. It, it's funny, this idea that you download the official game and then you have to download some sort of unofficial mod pack in order to play it the right way 10 years later. Honestly, like if I went back and, and replayed, you know, Skyrim or, or The Witcher 3 on PC, um, I would need someone holding my hand to tell me what's the best possible version that I can play after, you know, 10 plus years of mod enhancements right because obviously 
again, there's the official Bethesda and then there's the everything else. And there's, as you said, there's some pretty amazing enhancements there. I probably don't have a PC that could run any of that stuff. I've seen, I've seen some of the, um, you know, the HD texture packs and that kind of thing. And they, they push the boundaries in pretty impressive ways. You, even though it's an old machine, if you want to play with the updated mods, you need to have a pretty powerful rig. Older game, rather, if if you want to play with some of the more more recent visual mods, you need a pretty powerful rig. Uh, so you use the term user generated content, and uh, I want to dive in a little bit into that. Um, first of all, do you do you wrap mods and user generated content into the same wrapper? Like for you, are they kind of one in the same, or is there a difference between the two? Some some people in studios sort of see it differently. So they see mods as, all right, they're modifying gameplay. That means scripts and code and complexity, whereas they see UGC as being simple. Like, you know, that's like you in-game using a drag-and-drop editor to, you know, build some blocks and then save that and share that with a friend or using some unit creator and then saving your unit. So some people differentiate. Uh, I don't. So I personally think that mods and UGC are just any type of content made for a game, whether it's an incredibly simple drag and drop, takes me two minutes, every single player in the game can do it, or it's uh, you need to have really strong 3D modeling, artistic programming skills to be able to create and share a mod. Like they're just two different dynamics, um, and I, I feel that mods and UGC just encompass all of that. Uh, and so, yeah, but, but people do certainly see it um, differently. And do you, so that's an interesting differentiator. And, and to me, it, it's, it sits on this sort of spectrum of effort, right? Where, again, like way over here in the total conversion space, I mean, you're looking at thousands of hours of investment easily, right? For some of those bigger mods, uh, there's a ton of work there. There's art to do, code to do, there's audio to re-record, there's menus to remake, like there's a, you know, a huge amount of effort. And then over here, there's, you know, whatever. I take the red shirt and I click the yellow button and I make it a yellow shirt, you know, done, right? So so this is done in seconds and this is done in, you know, whatever, thousands of hours. And so as you move that slider towards the total conversion, you're, you're generally looking at the more committed, the people who maybe have aspirations towards doing this professionally, right? And And are, you know, cutting their teeth and trying to figure out what it takes to build a full game. And over here, you know, you're probably looking at, it's a subset of this, so you probably have some of the same people, but these people basically just, they've got something to say, right? They're just messing about, they want to contribute, they want to add, they want to share, uh, but they're not necessarily looking to become, you know, professional game developers. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a rise in UGC over the years. I don't know, I don't know that I could put my finger on when it started. I mean, when it really caught my attention was Minecraft. Like Minecraft feels like the high watermark for kind of casual, democratized, officially endorsed user-generated content inside of a of a game world. Um, but there may have been examples of it being really, really big before Minecraft. And I'm wondering, do you feel like there is an upward trend in UGC? You know, the Minecraft becoming the Roblox and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And if you think there is an upward trend, what do you uh, attribute that to in terms of player behavior? Why do you think we're seeing more people wanting to contribute and create, not necessarily 
tens of thousands of hours, but just something to the games and the worlds and the universes that they love. Yeah. So I, I think the reason why Minecraft really stands out to you is because it was probably the first really visible sandbox where the game literally like is fairly rudimentary, you know, on the surface and like modding really adds so much to the experience. Like, can you imagine Minecraft being the, being the size that it is without its modern UGC community? It, it mm-hmm. wouldn't, it wouldn't be, you know, a smidge of the game that it's become. No. Um, it's such a core and critical part of it. So I think it's really the, the sort of the original sandbox. And there's also Gary's mod, uh, which yep. is huge and probably, you know, predates it. Roblox certainly predates Minecraft. Uh, these are all sandbox games where without their creator and their communities, they probably don't survive. Whereas you look, if you look at the games that sort of came before them but had strong modding communities like Half-Life and uh, Warcraft 3 and, and Skyrim, those games all stood on their own like because they're, they're just a core, amazing That's gameplay right. experience. That's right. Whereas these other games, they actually really need the creator community and then the creator community benefits from that sort of bi-directional relationship. Um, the way that we always, I suppose whenever we talk to studios and advise them um, on how they should approach and think about mods and UGC at, at, at Mod.io is we always say, like, the reason why it's such a powerful thing and you should try and explore it and go as deep as you can is because you're unlocking the full potential of your audience um, in that some of your players, they may just see themselves as um, like they're just there to consume content and that's all they want to do. They never, they don't, they're not creative. They don't want to create. They, they just want to play, 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 and they want to, you know, have their universe expand and try new and awesome things. That's me, right? Like I tried mm-hmm. creating a mod for Doom back in the early days and I very quickly realized I didn't editor. have the talent, <laughs> a wad. Yeah, I tried creating a wad and I had no idea and yeah. I then started making websites for it. That was what yeah. I did. <laughs> that sounds so I'm, I'm, I'm a Exactly. So I'm a, I'm a consumer. Like I love consuming. But then there's this percentage of your audience that are creators and they may not even know it and they just love the creation. They love the, the sort of adrenaline rush that they get when they see someone playing and enjoying their creation. And then they, so they, they may start small and the game may only be yeah, yellow, you know, make a green T-shirt yellow. But then they do that and they get addicted to it or hooked, you know, and they, they love the fact that they've got this power and then they start getting deeper and they start changing more and more. So for me, it's always like the, the best thing that you can do is as much as possible, go f- as max dyma- dynamic range. And I mean, allow your creators to go as far as they can um, with your tools. So don't just limit them in like one sort of t- type of creation. And then two, uh, like unlock the full potential of your player base by, you know, encouraging creation because you'll, you'll then appease your consumers who just want content and you'll appease your people who are like, you know what, I enjoy creating more. Yep. And a, a term that we throw around a lot on my side these days is, is gap game as a platform as opposed to game as a service or game as a product, I guess. So, you know, Minecraft and Roblox in particular, I guess Roblox are, are sort of big standout examples of, of, of gaps, games as a platform. Um, I'm wondering, you know, are there any of these games where the game is modding? Like UGC and modding is the game and everything is built around that tenet, like Roblox and to a certain extent like Minecraft. Are there any others out there over the last couple of years that have sort of caught your attention that we can talk a little bit about? So it's a really it's a really difficult field to get into because like Minecraft and uh, Roblox and Gary's mod they've grown 
organically over a, over a decade plus time frame. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of modern titles that are pursuing this. So Mana Core, Creator, which was just acquired by Facebook. Yeah. Um, like, you know, there's, there's countless ones that are operating in this space that are trying to build that sort of platform for easy content creation. And you've just got to, you know, like in a way it's really hard to overcome the chicken and egg situation where you, like your creators are there to create for a community and your community is there to play the content. But, you know, it's hard for the creators to start creating without, you know, the player base. And there's, if the player base won't come until the creations are there. So in a way, I think you've almost got to seed the community and put out like a really good base game and then sort of try and open up sort of the, the platform-like elements to it and really embrace that. So I, I, think, I think we're going to see a lot more gap because the model is kind of proven now yeah. and the success of Roblox is really hard to ignore, right? Like they've just gone so large since they started really focusing on sort of that element of their community and i i it, it's too big to ignore but it's also a very hard problem to solve and so i think the studios that will see the greatest success are ones that are like you know what let's let's make an incredible gameplay experience like let's take grand theft auto for example like incredibly amazing gameplay experience but could also be the most amazing sandbox ever and so if they were to say you know what let's start exploring how this can be more of a sandbox let's open up sort of development tools and pipelines and things to our player base and see what comes of that, they're the games that I think will really win where they win that core audience and then they start layering in more and more UGC platform-like elements. Okay. So you mentioned core um, and, and Krata. It'd be very interesting to see what Facebook does with, with Krata. Have you heard of an Apple Arcade title called Wonderbox? I'm not the largest mobile gamer, I must okay. admit. So okay. please enlighten me. So that's fine. So Wonderbox is very interesting. It's on Apple Arcade, and it's three-quarter sort of isometric. The levels all look kind of like dioramas. So, you know, it's kind of like the whole cutout of the world is visible. Um, it's quite a pleasing sort of semi-cartoony aesthetic. And it's a little, it's a little role-playing game kind of thing. So each cutout, each world is a, a, a little mini RPG and you can put monsters and you can put treasure and, you know, whatnot. And you can have multiple of these worlds sort of connected together. And they have a very nice world builder, right? It, it's kind of Minecraft-esque, you kind of drop blocks in place and they snap into place in a really sort of pleasing way. And you can drop monsters and they kind of lock in in a really pleasing way. And then they can kind of automatically pathfind and navigate around the world and you kind of build your little quests and it, it's, it's a very mobile friendly um, UGC platform, but it's super hyper targeted, right? You're not making, uh, you know, whatever. You're not making a racing game with this. You're not making a match three. You're not making any sort of aesthetic or, or, or total conversion. You're basically, it's a level editor, right? Hmm. Now on the flip side, you have core where, you know, it, it's for all sense and purposes, a reskin of Unreal, right? Like, you know, almost if you can do it Unreal in Unreal, you can kind of do it in core. I mean, not quite, but in, in some ways that's what they're trying to do. So it's a full editor, right? And, and it's quite sophisticated. And again, you know, theoretically you can build almost anything in it. So 
it sounds to me like what you're saying is, but the, the major difference between the two is, is in, in Wonderbox, when you download it, there's a campaign, there's a story, there's a mission, there's a, a goal, you level up your character, you know, like whatever. It's got its main kind of thing. Oh, and by the way, it's also kind of this UGC platform. Whereas in Core, they don't really put any single game front and center, right? It, it, what you're getting when you download Core is a little bit more that kind of metaverse play. It's like, well, it can be anything and you can play anything and you can be anyone and you can go anywhere and you can kind of do it all. Oh, and by the way, you can make, you know, incredibly cool content as well. So am I hearing you right where you say that you, you think this sort of wonder box opportunity, even if it's maybe less powerful in terms of its editing suite, has some interesting opportunities because it's first and foremost a game. It's going to draw its audience to it with the power of the game, the narrative, the experience, etc. And then kind of backdoor in the UGC over time. Am I... Am I Am I putting words in your mouth, or am I uh, am I understanding sort of what you the point you were making? No, not at all. I I think that uh, Wonderbox, um, which yeah, I actually was um, familiar with it. It just slipped my mind. Um, modding generally is on PC and console these days, but uh, and that's where we're typically focused. But mobile is a really interesting expansion area, and Wonderbox is definitely one of the sort of the early sort of movers in this area. Uh, I would say the way that I would classify these is they're both sort of they are targeting very different segments of the market, and I would uh, and with Wonderbox the way that I generally would think about it is yes they're going to capture a much larger audience and have much greater traction initially because they've got the core gameplay experience and then they're layering in UGC to sort of continue that expansion and building. So once you as a player. Um, have finished the campaign, you can then, you know, become a creator and extend the campaign for yourself and for others. Uh, or you could just you know, choose to be a creator and go. Whereas in, in Manicore, like it's, it's like the, it is that metaverse. It's that more blank slate. And the only real creations that are generally available are the ones that are made by the community. That's right. Um, and uh, I'd say the difference between these long term is a, a title like Wonderbox. If they just keep it as is and they, they constrain content creation to be these really simplistic but thing, but, but um, sort of very simplistic but highly engaging content, they'll find that their ceiling is probably here, whereas like the Roblox ceiling and the Mana Core ceiling I think is quite a bit higher because there is really no end to how deep you can get with the tooling. Whereas with Wonderbox, there's a there's there's like you can only use the tools that the developers keep creating and giving to you. Whereas mm-hmm. you can like in Roblox you can, you know, infect code and script your own tools. And in Manacore, I know that the intent, I imagine the intent is for you to be able to code and script your own tools. So there's the ceiling I think is higher because uh, you can just go that much deeper and like you couldn't sure. you couldn't in Wonderbox, for example, make a gameplay mode. You couldn't change the gameplay mode. Whereas in Manacore, you can change the gameplay. So I don't know yeah. if I've explained that too well, but that's sort no, of no, how absolutely. I see it. Yeah. It, Easier, quicker, you, faster adoption makes sense yeah. on mobile. And uh, then, you know, but yeah, you're constraining it a little bit. But, and, 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 but also potential total addressable market, right? Like there's just only going to be so many people in the world who can make a core game. And, and it's going to be 
probably somewhere in that kind of Roblox percentage, one, two, three percent, something like that. That's my guess, right? And I might be wrong. I, I haven't spoken to any of the core guys. And if anyone from core is listening to this and you want to publicly disagree with me, please do. But my assumption is that somewhere around the Roblox percentage of your player base is actually making content because it's a separate editor. It's PC only. It's in incredibly sophisticated and rich. And so therefore it's going to overwhelm everyone except those who are a little bit more practiced and experienced and highly motivated. But of course the content they're making is fantastic and incredible and they can get paid and all sorts of amazing things. Wonderbox for me is kind of like TikTok, right? My guess is they're probably aiming for kind of 20, 30, 40% of their player base to be creators, right? Rec Room is, a, is another example of a of a mobile game with UGC in it that is claiming, aiming for much higher player to creator conversion rates, more along the lines of your sort of TikToks that are sitting at the 50, 60% of users creating content. And yes, it means the tools are simpler. And yes, it means that the kinds of content they're creating may be a little bit, you know, less sophisticated. And yes, it means maybe the ceiling is a little bit lower. But what they're hoping is that because of the, the number of people on the platform and the number of people creating content, they're going to get some pretty special things as well. They might not ever get a match three inside of their platform, but they're going to get some amazing expressions of creativity just because of the, the total addressable creator base. Um, so yeah, very, very different models. Yeah. Probably you're talking about, both. you're talking about a game where creation is part of the gameplay experience versus yeah. a game where you're actually either a creator creating yeah, and yeah. working in really detailed tools or you're a player playing yes. the creations. Whereas in, in Wonderbox, it's blurred where yes. you are both a creator and a player. That's a good point. So it's a very different sort of, I think, experience that they're targeting. And, and like Wonderbox, like, you know, Super Mario Maker, for example, it kind of like I think there's a world for both of these titles, and there's different sort of objectives. But but it's yep. a, you know, it's a really smart play because yeah. the, if there's one thing that I've seen with modders, time and time and time again, you give them a tool and they'll figure out how to do things that you didn't think were possible with it, That's no matter how point. simple that that tool is. And so That's a good point. They'll they'll come up with level ideas and concepts that like you know, even you your you know most talented level designers you know couldn't conceive. Be interesting, just on the Super Mario Maker angle, Nintendo recently announced uh, another UGC tool for the Switch. What is it called? Um, game making, Game Maker's Garage, I think. Um, game Builders and, and it's Yeah. Have you seen this one? I have, yeah. Yeah, that'll be very interesting. Like Nintendo, it's very interesting to see Nintendo kind of go deep on UGC and, and, and creation. Um, you know, they've obviously had some big success with Super Mario Maker and Animal Crossing in its own way, right, is, is a pretty strong sort of UGC world, mm. maybe not quite as sort of social um, and, again, hyper-targeted towards a p more the aesthetic side of things. But now with Game Maker Garage, like, they're really sort of testing all of the different ways that creators can, you know, bring their passion and their love to various Nintendo properties. Uh, so I'll be very interested to see what kind of stuff gets made with that. Yeah, I'm really just to see how Game, Ma uh, Game Builder Garage and these others uh, sort of play out too because I, I feel like they're going to create an entire generation of people that Absolutely. potentially have had a taste of game development and creation 
maybe learned some really key and you know important skills around programming and development uh, and where that lands us because like this is this is this is stuff that you and I didn't grow up with. Um, Absolutely, but, uh, everyone today is. So I think it's going to be a really interesting market going forward, and yeah. I think these products are going to evolve and open up and you know lead to really you know, awesome things. Have you heard of uh, the Sandbox or Decentraland or any of these sort of like crypto or NFT powered? I, I have indeed. It's it's certainly uh, you know track and observe all of these platforms doing their different things. Yeah. So I think a second I, life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, I I'm wondering. I mean, what they're doing and what they're trying to do is amazing right and and in some ways kind of you know completely revolutionary and and if you support crypto or you don't support crypto is obviously going to have a big impact on whether you look at their projects favorably or otherwise but i'm wondering if you have any sense of whether or not the integrated business model, the, the fact that sort of remuneration is in some ways baked into these platforms, is that economics shifting the mod community in any way? Are there, are there more and more modders or creators or whatnot being pulled to those platforms because they see the potential to monetize from, from the beginning or are those platforms still maybe too limited in terms of total player base for anyone to actually make meaningful money there? I guess I'm just wondering whether or not the, you're seeing any trends of, of how economics are shifting the, you know, whatever, where the, the mod builders are, are spending their time and energy and love these days. Uh, it's really too early to tell because those projects are, because they are decentralized in nature, they're, for the most part, they also means they can't really ship on all the common stores. So you won't Absolutely. find the sandbox on PlayStation because their decentralized nature probably doesn't permit them to use the financial systems and that that are provided by those platforms. Um, and so at the moment, at least, it's a little bit hard to say how it's going to play out in the wider market because it's still early days. But it's certainly very exciting, like what they're providing and what they're doing and enabling and how they're approaching it, where being a crypto-based project, day one, it's very clear that there's financial incentives, um, which is something that hasn't really happened to a large extent across modding and UGC. So what is that shift in the creator's mindset where it's today you, most creators create because they want to learn um, they love the game. They're passionate about it. And they want to explore different ideas. Like, like we've polled, you know, created so numerous times. Like, why, why did you, you know, make content that you did? And the incentives are always very a very diverse bucket. Uh, Interesting. You introduce financial incentives, and that's a that's probably you know almost like you know, money and fame, right? Like they're like probably the most two sort of I guess you know incent you know strongest incentives out there for certain individuals and. Like we haven't really seen what that will, how that will play out. I, I, and I don't think we quite have seen it either because the player base of these titles, much like all of the sandbox titles that we discussed earlier, they still have that same chicken and egg problem where they need their creators to make the content that will pull the players, um, but the players won't come until the content's created. So maybe money helps, you know, accelerate that production 
um, through crypto and that potential, and then that helps them sort of shortcut their journey to success. Too early to really tell, but I, I, I know that there's just going to be heaps of innovation and ideas and concepts that explored there, and it's certainly an exciting space to, um, to watch. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I, you know, I wish them all the best. And I, I also pay very close attention to those platforms. And yet the thing that I, I, I struggle with with them is that I, I can't see past, in its current state, I can't see past it as the stock market, right? The, the sort of speculation market. Because when I connect... What's presented first and foremost to me is money. Fun is harder to find, right? It's not fun first, money second. It feels like it's money first, fun second, third, fourth, maybe, you know, fifth. And I don't mean this as a knock towards them whatsoever for exactly the reason that you've said. They've chosen incentivization as the vehicle to break the chicken and egg you know, loop that everyone who tries to make a gap is facing. And so I think that is a as good a strategy as any. Uh, but at least so far, when I, when I do log into these platforms, I'm not given that sort of handheld experience of like, and here's how you get to fun, right? In, in a, you know, in, in, in a lot of the gaming industry, we have this terminology, time to fun, Right. And you want that to be really low <laughs> because the faster your player is having fun, generally speaking, the more likely they are to stick. I think some of these decentralized gaps have a challenge whereby their time to fun is currently a little bit far. It's a little bit long. And uh, hopefully as they incentivize more and more creators who are getting better and better at the platform, they're bringing that time to fun in. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think if you look at any crypto project, it's it's early adopters are crypto enthusiasts, not game players or game creators. So yeah. it's a they've got this weird audience that isn't is really engaged and interested in what they're making, um, but probably more of it as an asset than exactly. uh, it as an actual game. And that's yeah. just a completely different mindset. So they've got different challenges to the other platforms. They've kind of solved yeah. the financial one first, which the other ones are yeah. trying to solve, but then they haven't solved the gameplay ones, which the other ones have. Yeah, <laughs> that's beautifully well put. <laughs> um, okay, so we've been talking for 50 minutes. We haven't even gotten to mod.io yet. Um, it's amazing how much we can talk about um, with mods. Uh, can we talk a little bit about kind of mod.io and what problem you guys are trying to solve? And, and then I guess as a sort of extension to that question... Are there any really interesting trends in game genres or mods or mod genres that you've been able to glean from your work with mod.io? Does this allow you to see stuff that's kind of trending at some sort of meta level that, that you find interesting and worth sharing? Yes. Uh, so uh, I guess at mod.io, the intent of the product really is to allow studios to take control and ownership of the UGC opportunity. Um, and we felt that uh, having run moddb.com for 18 years prior and worked with uh, so many creator communities and so many gaming studios that were doing it unofficially at an arm's length, that just general trends in the gaming industry are pointing towards UGC being you know, strategically really important for maintaining player engagement mm-hmm. uh, and longevity and, uh, especially as business models change and you've got access to so many more 
players through Games Pass and other services, but the business models are sort of uncertain as a result. Content and community engagement and involvement feels like a pretty good place to be. Um, and with all this sort of in mind, we set out to make Mod.io to help studios, uh, I suppose, take ownership of their creator community. Um, and what I mean by that is it needs to branch out beyond just PC because the modern game is is quite often cross-platform and they're trying right. to like pursue wherever the opportunity might be. So whether it's on Epic Games Store today or it's in Games Pass tomorrow or it's on Apple Arcade or somewhere else, um, and you don't want to have technology that can only work in one place. Like These days you want to be able to have technology that works everywhere. So Mod.io at its core tries to solve that problem by making UGC accessible, safe, and compatible everywhere your game ships. And that's sort of the, the, the most important and obvious thing. But beyond that, it's about what you've sort of alluded to, and that is if UGC and content is so important to games, you also need to understand what your creators and players are doing so you know you can recognize early, oh, well, this we've got this amazing creator. Maybe we should offer him a job and you know, get him to work you know, officially yeah. for our studio. Or there's so many mods that are tagged with you know, difficulty level hard. Clearly people really like, and they're the ones that are getting played, clearly people really like hard you know, content or you know, like this type of content is, is trending. So giving studios then access to that metrics and the ability to you know, engage and work with their community I think is going to create really strong feedback loops that you know, the studio is going to then be able to use to inform their game design decisions. So putting, really focusing on that is really important for us. And, and finally, I suppose it's the opportunity that modding presents. And that is like we've seen um, so many different studios trying to get form a better relationship with their players in game and out of game um, because gaming now is so sort of persistent across our daily lives. Um, and that's really hard to achieve. But I think mods and UGC is a really awesome way to sort of create more touch points and ways to reach okay. your consumers because. Like, you know, say you're playing a game like Skyrim, like we are talking about earlier, half the time you're in the game and you're experiencing the mods and content and the other half of the time you're talking to friends and you're on the train and you're like, you know, I want to see what the latest creators have made, you know, what sort of new um, gear can I get and what, you know, new, you know, graphic enhancement mods are available or different things. So it's a really awesome way to sort of pull your players together into one cohesive experience that works cross-platform and sort of, ties into all the ideals that the game studios are pursuing. And we wanted to create a platform that facilitates that. And largely, we felt that modding and UGC is underrepresented in gaming because it's so complicated and uh, mm-hmm. that studios are so used to having complete control over the entire gaming experience, all the content and everything else. Whereas UGC, the minute that you embrace UGC, uh, you relinquish you some of that control. <laughs> yeah. And that means that, like, you need to have really strong moderation and curation and reporting systems to manage uh, that that creation. You need to have really strong discovery systems so you can surface the the amazing content. Um, you need to have really good community tools so that your creators you know, get that sense of you know adrenaline and that rush when they see people engaging and commenting and you know rating and talking about their sort of product so there's a lot of these challenges that i think studios traditionally haven't had to face like it's so far removed from game development um and we wanted to just make that easy and provide this complete toolkit that solves all of that and in effect you know almost becomes roblox as a service um for them 
So that's sort of like what Modra.io is and what it intends and aims to be. And in terms of like what we're seeing through our own metrics and just users and creations and the like, uh, really like it's, it's really depends on the game. Um, okay. So we've got a title called SnowRunner, for example, and it's a simulation sort of game where you're driving um, trucks and four drives through, you know, really snowy and sort of, you know, these sorts of scenarios and making a vehicle for that, like players really want high, high realism, really, you know, amazing vehicle creations. It's really complicated to make a vehicle. Um, so it, it's just, you get to see, you get a taste for the sort of types of, of vehicle and content that the pit players want to be driving. And what's, what I found really funny about that community is whenever anyone makes like a joke vehicle, like, uh, you know, there's an octopus vehicle or there's a, there's a, you know, a truck that's got, you know, sort of ease on it. And, uh, like it, it's funny, like the community actually likes the really hyper-realistic vehicles and probably doesn't really relate to the arcade vehicles. And so, you know, like, like that's, that's really interesting observation for me that you can see <laughs> through the information where it's like, you know, you'd think, all right, I'll add a fun gameplay mode to this where vehicles are bouncy. And the no, community's like, no, 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 they're like, this isn't realistic. I want, <laughs> this is you know, real, man. Don't mess with is, our, don't yeah, mess with the world. Exactly. That's really so, cool. yeah. Great. Okay. Awesome. Well, so listen, Scott, I guess I just, uh, we're, we're coming up on an hour. Any closing messages? Did we, did we do mods justice? Did we, did we run the gamut? Did we cover the past, present and future of this space that you obviously live and breathe and care about so deeply? I, you asked me actually some pretty hard questions. I'll be honest, because, um, when you were really testing my knowledge, when you're asking about Wonderbox and, uh, <laughs> all the different ones, like, I mean, I've, I keep a finger on the pulse of all of them, but that, that one actually threw me. I didn't expect you to. Come that way. So you've certainly covered the gamut in terms of content creation and modding's history and evolution. Uh, the future probably hasn't been touched on as heavily, um, but the future's hard to sort of touch on without it becoming an advertisement for what we're doing, which is obviously not right. the intent, <laughs> um, because we're sort of you know really focused on that. Like so, it's like what's next for modding? Um, maybe um, a little bit outside of that. I think it's been it's been a good you know conversation. All right. All right. Well, we can always come back at a later date and talk about the future. And, and I can try and find some more hardball questions to throw at you about platforms or, or gaps that you might not yet have studied so deeply. That's always, that's always an interesting option. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're trying um, to watch and observe what every game's doing and seeing absolutely. what's working no, and what isn't. It's great. And for, and for what it's worth, I thought you handled the Wonderbox question very elegantly. So. <laughs> well, uh, Sorry I, if it flummoxed I, you a little bit, but I thought you handled it very well. I love the way um, that you think about the TikTok of modding too. That's kind of it's, that's a it's a curious way to think about it because traditionally that's not the direction that mods have been in at all. It's a very no. uh, different direction. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, yeah. And and to me, I it, it feels like like Roblox. Well, it just feels like the last couple of years have been, a, you know, big game changers there. Obviously, lots of people are chasing the UGC pie. Lots of people see the value, just as you've sort of brought up, of why it matters to have engaged com an engaged community of creators, uh, you know, to 
A, make sure you've got evergreen content. B, make sure you've got a platform that's growing. C, you know, make sure there's a diversity of experiences, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a lot of people see the value in that. And then that means a lot of people are tackling it in different ways. And, um, you know, who knows if there's a right way and a, and a wrong way. But what's very evident to me is there's very different ways to tackle it. And there are absolutely people out there. I mean, we didn't even talk about hype hype. But uh, if you haven't already, take a look at HypeHype. It's being developed by a small mobile developer out of uh, Finland called Frogmind Games. I think they're the maker of the Badlands series. And it is TikTok for hyper-casual games. It literally flows like TikTok. It's got a swipeable feed, and you like swipe, 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 and you like and heart and star and the whole nine yards. It looks and feels like TikTok. But when you tap on a game, you're not watching a TikTok video, you're instant playing a hyper-casual game of, you know, whatever, anything you can imagine. And these are all created by the community with their mobile-first UGC tool creator, right, which is probably somewhere in between, you know, whatever, a Roblox and a, and a Wonderbox. And, um, you know, so it, it's just yet another example of a team and a company chasing this vision of a game as a platform with yet another very different sort of spin or interpretation on depth versus breadth. And I think we will see every permutation under the sun in the coming years as people try and figure out, you know, what's the best way to serve their specific community of players and creators. Oh, no, you're totally right there. There's, there's no real right or wrong way to do it. And it's, it's funny because UGC has been around for 30 plus years at this point. And I think that we've still barely scratched the surface. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and those days are gone now where studios have recognized that you can't, like, we live in this creator economy and, uh, and like content is king. Um, yep. And yep. In, in that world, in this hyper competitive world where games are free and you just need to find new ways to engage players. I think the traditional monetization mechanisms that have been somewhat predatory on the players almost, um, and, and like people have tired of them. And the next evolution is to actually give your players create, you know, enable creativity and content because you're no longer, you're no longer holding back progression or, you know, Absolutely. almost introducing gambling mechanics. You're actually giving them new gameplay experiences. Like what's, you know, how can you complain about that? Um, like, you know, where's the downside in that? And I think the studios that figure out how to do that really well um, will do really well as a result, for sure. Well, awesome. Scott, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, thanks for your uh, wisdom, your insight, your good humor. I really appreciate it. Um, I wish you and the mod.io team all the best. And uh, hopefully we can talk again soon in the future. Uh, it's been fantastic to be here. Appreciate your time as well. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Scott today. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm your host, Ben Mattis. This has been the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. We're soon coming to the end of our first season. We have one more special episode that we're keeping in our back pocket that we will release probably in early December. And then we'll take a break over the Christmas holidays and gear up for a second season in 2022. 
If you've listened to the podcast throughout the year, thank you very much. If you've enjoyed it or, or learned something, that's wonderful. That's sort of all I hope for in, in, in doing this podcast. And as always, if you do like it, please don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend, share it, like it, all of that good stuff. Subscribe on your podcast, whatever your podcast player of choice is. That's how we measure, right? That's how we tell if we're doing something right is are we getting more subscribers? Are we getting more downloads? Are we getting more likes? Are we getting more reviews? Obviously, we don't do this for the money. We're doing this because we think maybe in some way, small way, we're, we're giving back to the community. Measuring whether or not that's meaningful is, <laughs> is the number one motivator to keep on going. So uh, if you do enjoy uh, this podcast, please do take, take a moment to, to subscribe or like or share with a friend. It would, uh, it would mean the world. And, and as always, have a great day, evening, afternoon, wherever you are. We'll talk to you again for a special episode in a couple of weeks. All right.